First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them, but rather serve them, because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach. And exhort these things. In the last chapter, Paul instructs Timothy about people in the church. In chapter 5, now in chapter, well in chapter 5, Paul has spoken about older saints in chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Widows in, in uh, verses 3 through 16. Church leaders in verses 17 through 25. But now Paul is going to address the, the issue of problem groups. What does that mean? What groups might cause problems? Slaves in verses 1 and 2. False teachers in verses 3 and 5. Rich in verses 6 through 10. So now Paul's focus is going to turn to groups of peoples who may create problems within the fellowship. And by the way, in the ancient world of Rome, slavery was a deeply entrenched institution. Some scholars estimate that the Roman Empire included some 60 million plus people who were slaves. The number of freedmen or former slaves would have also been quite large. What this translates to is that every other person in the Roman Empire was either a slave or a former slave. In that ancient world, many of these slaves came into a right relationship with God and Christ. Freedmen and current slaves heard the gospel. They understood that their sins could be forgiven and that they could be reconciled to God. And just because they had found spiritual freedom in Christ, Many of them remained slaves. And slaves might be tempted to disobey their masters. So Paul will argue that slaves will exercise honor and respect toward their unsaved masters so that they might respect the name of God and his word. Slaves with believing masters might be tempted to take advantage of those believing masters. And so Paul also warns them against that temptation as well. The New Testament has a great deal of instructions concerning this circumstance in that ancient world. If you want to know more, you can think about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, and the entire book of Philemon is somewhat dedicated to that subject as Paul writes to Philemon about his runaway slave named Onesimus. 
And you might be thinking, even at this very moment, I don't usually like to exercise my psychic powers because it usually just brings grief. But right now you might be thinking, why doesn't the Bible just condemn slavery? Why doesn't it just condemn slavery as a sinful blight? Why doesn't it just condemn slavery as a moral outrage? Why doesn't it just condemn slavery as a crime against God and against humanity? Those are good questions. For those of you who are in, in connect groups, you're, you're going, where are the questions this week? Hey, guess what? I'm going to give you lots of questions to ask. I'm hoping you're going to go, oh, that's a good question. I'm going to write that one down. Paul is going to lay down principles of love and justice that's going to eventually lead to the abolition of slavery. Slavery was abolished in the United States, technically, in 1865. The Emancipation Proclamation took place in 1863, but do you realize that when President Lincoln freed the slaves in 1863, not one single slave was let go. What they were freed to do was to fight for themselves. And that was the first step in the emancipation process. You might think, what does this have to do with me? I mean, slavery's been long gone. No, according to the Bible, you are a slave to whatever controls your passions. What you get up in the morning thinking about and serving, how you conduct your life, these are all indications of who you serve or what you serve. It does have a practical application. Francis Folks writes, quote, the principles of this whole section apply to employees and employers in every age, whether in home or in business or in the state, unquote. This section is going to invite us to ask and answer a different question. What do I believe about work? Some people might think that work is the product of the curse. But we're going to discover that according to the Bible, we're hardwired to work. That work isn't the product of the curse. Do you know what's a product of the curse? Laziness and selfishness. And so, are you employed? Does someone else employ you? If you are employed or if someone else employs you, guess what? There are going to be principles that we can glean from this section that's going to help us honor God and that's also going to help us present Christ in the workplace. And so we begin in verse 1, our duties to masters, think employees. In verse 1 it says, let as many bond servants, these are, it translates a word doulos, which means slaves, as are under the yoke, count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Paul is going to address the bond servants, read slaves, who are under the yoke. 
That word is important in our passage. It's the Greek word zugon. It means submissive service to another person's authority. Submissive service to someone else's authority. Remember when Jesus invites us in the New Testament? Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm meek and lowly. There's a hard yoke. And there's an easy yoke. In the New Testament, the yoke didn't necessarily contain elements of baggage or abusive relationship. Submissive service didn't always mean abusive service. Think of being a child growing up saying to your brother or sister, I'm not your slave. Well, the reason why we say that is because brothers and sisters have a way of abusing us. But the idea didn't necessarily carry the connotation of abuse. But the word did carry the connotation of a heavy weight. So I'm going to suggest to you that Paul understood he wasn't ignorant of or oblivious of the oppressive weight of slavery. Now remember, slaves by definition are in submission to someone else or something else. And so Paul provides instructions, duties, if you will, for the bondservants and then provides a reason for that duty. Look what it says, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. In the name of God, we have a revelation of the character of God. So that when Paul uses that term, the name of God, it implies everything that God is. It implies all of his characteristics, power, mercies, grace, omnipotence. It's all of those things. In the word doctrine of God, we get the full panoply of the revelation of God in Christ. Everything that Jesus has said to us about God and about ourselves. And so in the doctrine of God and the name of God, he's giving us a full-orbed, all-inclusive statement that concerns everything that the Bible has to say about the revelation of God. And so Paul is going to make it clear how believers act while under the authority of God and of each other. Think of what Paul is saying. He's saying Adopt a proper attitude of submission and respect and perform quality work which makes the message of, God, of, of the gospel and the identity of Christ and the character of God pleasing. In Paul's world, there were also people who refused to work. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he has to address those people. He says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat, unquote. The expectation was that human beings work. Are there circumstances where that's not possible? Of course there are. There are people who are injured. There are people who are hurt. There are people who have a stroke. There are people who have a disability. There are people who legitimately can't work. So this isn't a, a condemnation for those people who can't work. It's a con condemnation for those who won't work. And so how do we maintain a biblical work ethic in a world that rejects the biblical concept of work. Remember what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with what you're dealing with. Do you live in a world that rejects the biblical idea of creation? Yes. Do you live in a world that rejects the biblical ideas about what it means to be a human being and what it means to be made in the image of God? Yes. Do you live in a world that rejects the idea that the problem that human beings face is that they're sinners in desperate need of a savior and that Jesus is that savior. Yes. Do you live in a world that rejects the biblical concept of work? I'm going to suggest to you that, that they do. Because according to the Bible, we work to glorify God and to please him, and then to be a provision to one another and support. And that's not what the people in the world think, even for a minute. And so, in Paul's world, he is going to address this issue in such a way, and it's going to lead in part to the answer to the question that we've already asked. Why in the world doesn't the Bible just come right out and condemn slavery? We're going to get to that. So, in other places in the New Testament, Paul is going to use the Greek word kyrios for masters of slaves. But that's not the word he's using in our text. Here, and in Titus chapter 2, verse 9, Paul uses a surprising word. It's even a hard word. For most of us, it might even be a an unfamiliar word. It's the Greek word despotes. Some of you know that word intuitively because it sounds a whole lot like despot. And it, the, the word despot comes from that word. It's used six other times in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament. It's a word that was often translated in reference to God. He's translated by that word. Why? Because he's the sovereign Lord of all. So it, it's a word that uses to describe God's unparalleled authority. God's unique position of authority, where God is the person who really is in charge of everything. One Greek scholar says this word means it denotes absolute ownership and uncontrolled power. That's exactly right. Trench, 
the despotes exercises a more unrestricted power, an absolute domination, unquote. So Paul is writing to slaves who have masters who can use them, abuse them. It's a terrifying position to be in. The ancient Greeks first used this word to describe the power of gods over mortals. It later became a word that was used to describe the unrestricted powers of masters over slaves. So we return again to our unanswered question. Why doesn't Paul condemn slavery? in an unambiguous fashion. And the reason I suspect in part is because the Romans would have put down a slave revolt in the most brutal terms possible. In history, there was a slave revolt called the revolt of Spartacus. And in that revolt, the Roman armies literally crucified First, tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of rebel slaves. An endorsement of, of a repudiation of slavery at this point would have resulted in the deaths of millions of human beings. And not just millions of slaves, but millions of people. In the ancient world, slavery was brutal and horrible. Slavery in ancient Rome was very different from the slavery that some of us have grown up with or become familiar with in the 16th and 17th centuries and 18th centuries. Slavery in the Americas was racially motivated. In the ancient Roman world, slavery was not racially motivated, it was economically mo motivated. But I want you to think about this. If it's racially motivated, is that bad? Of course it is. If it's economically motivated, is that bad? Of course it is. Slavery is horrible whether it's racially motivated or economically motivated. But in the ancient world of Rome, it was economically motivated because people would become slaves because of war, capture. They became slaves because of poverty. In other words, literally tens of thousands of people would sell themselves into slavery in order to satisfy debts, sometimes to survive. In the ancient world, slaves were medical doctors. They were educational tutors. They were estate managers. They were entertainers. They were musicians. They were librarians. They were personal secretaries. But they were considered living tools. The Roman statesman Cicero said, slaves are the excrement of mankind, unquote. Contrast that with John Wesley's description of slavery in his own day, quote, that inexorable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. In the Roman world, there was a hierarchy and a caste system. 
which created this marginalization. In the Roman world, slaves were bought, they were sold, they were inherited, they were exchanged, they were seized to pay their master's debts. Masters had unlimited power. They could punish for any reason or no reason at all. In the first century, slaves that were productive were often treated with leniency and rewarded. It wasn't unusual for a master to teach a slave his trade. It wasn't unusual to form genuine friendships. The Romans didn't view slaves again as people under the law. But the Roman Senate in AD 20, which is going to be 10 years before Jesus comes on the scene as far as his public ministry is concerned, and the Roman Senate is going to grant slaves accused of crimes the right to a trial. It also became quite common and popular for slaves to exercise the right to purchase their own freedom. And so again, in the ancient world, if Christians led a slave revolt, it would have left millions dead. And Christians opposed anarchy. They promoted peace and order. So when Paul writes these words, Christians are a minuscule minority, but they're growing. They're growing, they're becoming an ever-increasing part of the population. The Life Application Bible adds this, quote, Christians were, excuse me, it's the commentary, Christians were for a long time such a small minority that they would have been wiped out. Their allegiance to Christ was already highly suspicious, and many believers lost their lives for the love of Christ alone the world would have crushed such a seditious response to their power, unquote. So the writers add that the Christians in the first century believed the world was on the precipice, right on the very edge of extinction. Rapture fever and an apocalyptic future seems to have been a part of almost every generation, including this generation. You're living in a generation that doesn't see an apocalypse coming because of the return of Jesus Christ. You're living in a generation that sees an apocalypse coming that's motivated by man-made climate manipulation and global weather changes. It's not unusual for your mother, father, brother, sister, family, friend, to believe that the reason why the future is so uncertain is because we're destroying our future. In the New Testament, Christians believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. So, since the world is gonna pass away, in their view, the highest priority wasn't to find myself free. It was to find myself engaging the genuine problem that, that was existing in that culture. So it wasn't a search for social or cultural justice. 
It was a keen desire on the part of the Christians to make sure everyone was saved. And I think that that's a problem that we face even to this day. We think that the overarching issue of our day is gun violence. Is gun violence a problem? Yes, it is. Are there any number of things that we could put on a laundry list of things to do that are pressing problems? Oh yeah. Could we put a $22 trillion debt on the list? We could. Could we put on the list the, glowing the growing hostility and uncertainty that's taking place in the world? We could. But in the Bible, the most pressing issue was whether or not you're going to go to heaven or whether or not you're going to go to hell. It's whether or not your sins have been forgiven or if you retain your sin, you retain your sin because you don't believe that Jesus is the Lord. And so Paul is going to attack this problem of slavery by providing a biblical worldview and what it means to be a human being, slavery is a satanic device that was meant to destroy people and physically and emotionally and financially cripple them. But slavery also has a spiritual crippling effect. Particularly for those people who are enslaved to sin. And Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one or despise the other. And each and every one of us makes a decision about who we will serve. Slavery, by the way, continues to exist. Slavery hasn't disappeared from the planet Earth. Again, in the past, it was motivated by race, it was motivated by economics, in the present it's motivated by some of the same issues. How can I make money off of these people? How can I subjugate people who are different from me, who have a different religious view than I do? How is it that I can wage war against them and subjugate them? How is it that I can find them, possess them, and then use them to gratify myself? Make no mistake about it. All of these horrors have a single common thread. And the single common thread to all of these horrors that is that they each deny the revelation of God, that God has been, that we've been made in the image of God and that we were made to know God and love God and serve God. We were made with the capacity so that we could minister to one another and encourage one another. And like I said, in the ancient world, slaves were viewed as living tools, a type of organic machine, technology. 
Abraham Lincoln famously said, quote, whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried out on him personally, unquote. That's exactly right. For people who want to subjugate other people, sometimes you just want them to get a taste of their own medicine. Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired strategy, though, is going to be way more subtle. And it's going to be way more clever. Paul's going to lay down principles like honor and respect and love and justice. These are the things that are going to eventually result in the institutional collapse of slavery in the Roman Empire. Do you know how... Roman slaves became eventually free throughout the, the Roman Empire. In the third century, Diocletian, in the midst of an economic tragedy, freed every single slave in the empire. Do you want to know why? Because he was a good and gracious man? Not even for a moment. He hated Christians and Christianity on a par that's hard for anyone to fathom. He freed the slaves because in the Roman Empire, slaves had at least one advantage. They didn't have to pay taxes. But by freeing the slaves, he doubled the economic base and the taxpayer base in the stroke of a pen. And he star staved off economic collapse of the Roman Empire for yet another 200 years. That's what really happened. Paul will write, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. I want you to just, for a moment, take in the radical nature of that statement. Paul seeks to change the hearts of slaves and masters. In the Expositor's Greek Testament, there's a summary of how Christianity went about destroying slavery. Quote, here as elsewhere in the New Testament, slavery is accepted as an, as an existing institution, which is neither formally condemned nor formally approved. There's nothing to prompt revolutionary action or to encourage repudiation of the position. The institution is left to be undermined and removed by the gradual operation of the great Christian principles of equality of men in the sight of God, the common Christian brotherhood, the spiritual freedom of the Christian man, the lordship of Christ to which every other lordship is subordinate, unquote. What's the result? The New Testament begins by making it impossible for Christian slave owners to continue to exercise abusive behavior. What's the principle for us? What's the takeaway for us? What's, what can we glean from that very thing? If you're a Christian and you're an employer, if you hire people, if people work for you, you have no right to abuse them. Well, you know, the law makes it necessary that I not discriminate against people. 
long before there were civil rights codes, the Bible gave instructions to Christian employers, you are required by God to care for these men and women, to make sure that you don't abuse them or hurt them. So that's a principle of application. But it also prompts other questions. Again, if you're in a small group, you might be asking the question when you get together. Tell me what you think about work. How is it that you view work? Do you see work as a punishment for debt? Do you see work as a necessary evil? Do you see work as something that's both allowed by God or ordained by God? Oh, by the way, do you honor? And that word honor means to esteem, to account, to regard your employer. Do you honor your employer? Remember, husbands are supposed to honor their wives. Remember, Jonathan has already talked about, we are to honor widows. So what does this mean, to honor employers? Well, again, if you're an employee, then you shouldn't steal from them. You shouldn't cheat your employer. You should get a full day's work for a full day's wage. And so he's going to continue with duties to Christian masters. Look at verse 2. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. And see, this is a sharp statement. You mean Jesus loves my believing master? Yes. Oh, by the way, does Jesus love your unbelieving master? Hey, if you're working for someone and they, they hate God, does Jesus still love them? Yeah. Does he want to see your unsaved employer saved? And so you might be thinking, well, Businesses aren't human. You, you don't save Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is not saved. But the people who work there, they don't necessarily know the Lord. The people who operate the place is supposed to exercise certain Christian principles. That's the point that he's making. So what is it? What is it that, that Timothy's supposed to teach and exhort? Look what it says at the end of the verse. Teach and exhort these things. Now some will combine the previous verse and the following verse, which we're going to get to next week. Whatever else this means, Paul expects Timothy to embrace his strategy and instructions. What are those? Slaves are supposed to respect and honor masters. Respect can't mean disrespect. Honor can't mean dishonor. Paul didn't see honor and respect of masters as support of the evil institution of slavery, but rather as a way to avoid the reproach of the gospel. Because perhaps the reproach of the gospel is in part what's at risk. Because if you've ever hired someone who says, I'm a Christian. 
the immediate expectation is, can I expect you to act like one? Can I expect you to serve like one? So when you tell me you're a Christian, is that your way of saying I'm going to do a better job or I'm going to do a worse job? Can I expect fidelity, integrity? So what is Paul's advice? Honor both unbelieving and believing masters, think employers, why should a slave be tempted to despise that word, by the way, in verse 2? Let them not despise. The literal meaning of that word in the Greek language is think against. Isn't that descriptive? Because you might think despise is something that you feel. I hate this person. This person disgusts me. But despise means think against. It doesn't mean feel lovey-dovey towards the person or, or against the person. It means to carefully consider how you might harm them or make life more miserable for them. So when a slave is tempted to despise, read, think against masters who are believers, he says, don't despise them. Why? Because they're brethren. The slave might assume that spiritual equality might somehow lessen earthly authority. And this is the key, ladies and gentlemen. Well, if we're both one in Christ, why can't I be the boss? <laughs> See, you're laughing because that's not the way work works. There are people who employ, and there are people who are employed. Now, again, what Paul is teaching is that simply because a person is a believer doesn't reduce temporal authority. But what does it hopefully include? The expectation that even your boss understands that he or she has a boss, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they're going to have to answer to. So giving greater service to believing masters, knowing, and this is the key, that faithfulness bears fruit. Faithfulness in your employment bears fruit. So if you work for a Christian employer, don't reduce your effort, increase your effort. So Paul seems to think that the greatest temptation that the Christian slave faced with a believing master was to despise, to think against that master. Slaves weren't supposed to use Christ as an excuse for dishonor or for disrespect. And we can't use Jesus as an excuse to do less work. So Paul will use the term believing master, faithful, and beloved who benefit from the slave's service. Now again, here's what he's doing. Maybe you've just worked for someone and you go, well, who benefits from my employment? Who are the people who benefit because I do this job? And so Paul invites them to consider the benefits to their master. 
But ultimately, you get to consider the benefits to the ultimate master of all. Because guess what? In the end, the person who's going to be honored or dishonored by your work is God himself. And this is why it is okay when people ask you, who do you work for? And you go, you mean who signs my paycheck or ultimately? What's the right answer? Jesus. So again, it shouldn't shock you or surprise you that in the ancient world, people found excuses for not doing their job. Now, I want you to imagine a world in Ephesus where both master and slave are going to Calvary Chapel, Ephesus. And it just so happens that the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Ephesus, is also a slave. Imagine it's the slave's duty to impart what Paul has been writing about or what Timothy has been instructing. And there's the master going, that's my slave. When the slave is giving instructions to the believers, does the slave have the authority that comes from God in Christ when he invites believing, unbelieving masters and slaves, when he invites anyone to turn from their sin and receive the Savior? Is he doing it with authority? Yes. Is there the expectation of response? Yes. When the slave from the pulpit says, Masters, treat your slaves honorably in Christ, could that be a little bit of pressure? I want you to think about that for good reason. And that is because Paul is arguing that the Christian slave doesn't take advantage of the Christian master, but gives greater service, better service, sincere service, since the master's going to benefit from such service, and that both are believers, both are precious to God, both are accountable to God. Can you imagine how revolutionary that is? So when we look at the testimony of scripture concerning work, we're, we're going to discover just several quick things. Number one, work or employment is ordained by God. Clearly, God works in Genesis chapter 1. He then ceases from his labor in Genesis chapter 2. And again, you might say, well, since you brought it up, isn't work a curse according to the Bible? No, not really. Human beings are placed in a garden and they're given a job to keep it and tend it. It is true that since the fall, God told Adam, by the sweat of your face, you're going to eat bread and you will return to the ground in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. So we might think that working is a curse, but rather I interpret this passage to mean that men must work and that God intends for people to work and that God intends for people to work as long as they live. And then you might think, then why are you retiring? <laughs> Write it down. Ask it at the small group. Why is he? I'm not abandoning work. There's still work to do. I'm hoping and praying that my new job 
is going to be fruitful. That it's going to bear fruit because we're made to serve. What constitutes meaningful service to you? What do you find meaningful? What do you find enjoyable? I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible invites you to participate in what I'm calling delight-directed duty. My Anthony told his brother that he would be willing to cook his own going-away celebration meal. Because for Anthony, cooking isn't work. For Anthony, cooking is a form of ministry. And for many of you, what you do is a form of service and ministry. So that when you say, how can I serve you? How can I bless you? How can I minister to you? The writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, intimates that a person can, quote, do anything better than find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat and find enjoyment? Ecclesiastes 9.10 reads, quote, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, for there is no work or or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grace where you're going there's gonna come a time when the sun is going to go down and the night is going to come and what you used to do you're no longer able to do so anything anything that you can do that God has gifted you to do that brings satisfaction and joy and the advancement of the kingdom is valuable. Work serves several functions. It provides income, money, resources to supply the basic needs of life. But it also provides a quality of life. But it also provides satisfaction in life. And so work also helps provide for the needs of others so that you can serve the Lord. So in, in closing, Paul reminds slaves that they're not to run away. They're not to rebel. They're not to act with insolence. They're not to do as little work as they can legitimately get away with and say to themselves, this is a pretty good job for slave jobs. I know what you're thinking. You mean government work, right? <laughs> this is good enough for government work. By the way, just as a note, there seems to be good evidence that Christian slaves commanded a higher price in the marketplace. That if a master chose between a pagan and a Christian, they would invariably choose the, the Christian because they had already get, get garnered the, the reputation of being more rep, rep, productive. They were willing to pay a higher premium for faithfulness, loyalty, integrity, excellence. And so Paul's instructions focus on honoring God. Paul's instructions focus not only on honoring God, but in that honor to use opportunity to witness for Jesus and to bring glory to the gospel. And if slaves were to serve their masters honestly in obedience and integrity, how much more are we to serve our employer with honesty and integrity and faithfulness? And what is Paul's reason? So that masters would learn to respect the name of God and the word of God. 
I want you to think about that. It isn't to respect you. It's to respect the God that you love and serve. Imagine your employer says, it's impossible for me not to think highly of your God because you love him so much. The unbelieving husband looking at his faithful wife. It's hard for me to be mad at a God who makes you stay with me. You understand what I'm saying? The faithful God-honoring wife who says, you know why I'm staying with you? The easiest thing in the whole wide world would be to walk away. But God has told me to love you and to do what's in your best interest. And it's always in a person's best interest to represent God and to represent Christ. I want to close with just this simple statement. Work becomes worship the moment you do it for Jesus. Work becomes worship the moment you do it for Christ. I cannot work my soul to save, for that my Lord hath done. But I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear son. I'll do it if I think it's going to advance the kingdom, if it's going to bring honor and glory to Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every individual. Lord, I pray for the people who are employed, who hate their job, that, Lord, you'll help them get a better job. Lord, I pray for that person who is struggling right now. They're unemployed, and they desperately need employment. Lord, I pray that you would find them a job, but not just any job, but a great job. A job where they can love you and honor you and serve you. Lord, we know that anything worth having, that often we have to pay the price. And that price is work, patience, love, and sacrifice. Lord, things worth having are worth working for. And Lord, we believe with all of our heart that work becomes worship the moment that we'll do it for you. In Jesus' name, amen.